1: In the spring of 2020, Raymond Buxton bought his dream home. The house is just a short walk from breathtaking beaches on the southwestern coast of Taiwan. 160 kilometers away, just across the strait, the Chinese mainland is barely visible in the distance. Raymond is a Canadian. He lives in Taiwan with his wife, Judy and they were settling into their new four-story home and doing some renovations. It was hot, so the windows were open to let the ocean breeze in, when Raymond heard a strange sound from outside. He grabbed his binoculars and climbed up onto his roof for a better look. Raymond lives about 500 meters from a Taiwanese Air Force base, and he watched as several fighter jets took off. Further in the distance, Chinese warplanes, fighter jets, and nuclear-capable bombers were heading straight toward them.
2: The mainland Chinese trying to demonstrate to the Taiwanese people and to the Taiwanese government, don't push us. This is how fast we can arrive here at... You know, we'll we'll make mincemeat out
1: of you. I'm Jeff Semple, senior correspondent for Global News, and this is China Rising. Episode eight, Taiwan. Raymond Buxton is from North Bay, Ontario. And before buying that dream home in Taiwan, he spent five years with the Canadian military, but his career was cut short. In 1999, Raymond was serving in Indonesia, flying in a helicopter when one of the engines died. He crashed into the ocean and broke his back. Due to his injuries, he was forced to retire. So Raymond went back to school, earned his teacher's license, and fell in love with a Taiwanese woman. They got married in 1998 and decided to move together to Taiwan. He says at the time, in the late 90s, few openly discussed the political situation. But today, tensions between China and Taiwan are impossible to ignore. In the 14 months since Raymond first heard those fighter jets flying near his home, they've become background noise.
2: It seemed like every hour on the hour, you could hear F-16, and F-18 Tomcats scrambling from the air base about a quarter mile away.
1: It's become an almost daily routine. Chinese fighter jets fly close to Taiwan. Taiwanese planes respond, issue a warning, and eventually the Chinese jets turn back to the mainland. Provoke, retreat, repeat.
2: It's military posturing. There's no other point They're basically saying, see, see how fast we can invade.
1: Beijing considers Taiwan to be a breakaway province of China, which it has long wanted to bring under the rule of the Chinese Communist Party. But opinion polls show the vast majority of people in Taiwan consider themselves to be Taiwanese, not Chinese, and consider Taiwan to be an independent state. A Chinese defense ministry spokesperson recently warned against what he called Taiwan's independence forces. Those who play with fire will burn themselves, he said. Taiwan independence means war. As if to underscore that point, the People's Liberation Army, the Chinese military, now regularly holds large-scale military exercises simulating an invasion of Taiwan. Chinese state television broadcasts propaganda videos of actual Chinese soldiers and weapons being loaded onto warships, which then take off into the water, apparently towards the island of Taiwan. During the exercise, tanks, artillery, and helicopters all open fire. Soldiers storm the beaches.
2: These glorious soldiers marching to liberate Taiwan and so on and so forth, that's an intimidation tactic. But, you know, Taiwanese are not, uh, Taiwanese are very, very tough people. I mean, these people are a, a, a big island or a small island in a big neighborhood, in a very tough neighborhood. And, you know, they just came out with a poll recently from the Taiwanese news and they said that it said that over 90% of people on this island identify as Taiwanese.
1: And a fight between the Taiwanese people and China could spill far beyond the island's borders. An island already determined to defend itself that could bring the US and China to war. The reality is that A conflict over Taiwan could easily turn into a nuclear war. To understand why a small island of around 24 million people risks sparking a world war, we need to quickly go back in time about 70 years. China, August 1945. The defeat of the common enemy, Japan, finds key areas of China held firmly by the communists. In the late 1940s, China was in the midst of a brutal civil war between the ruling nationalists and the communists. By 1949, the Chinese Communist Party had gained the upper hand, taking control of the mainland. October 1st, 1949. In Beijing, Mao Zedong inaugurates the so-called Chinese People's Republic for a red China that is to emerge as a powerful and ruthless communist co-equal of Soviet Russia. The Communist victory, celebrated with a display of captured American arms, has been won in the face of what two years before seemed insurmountable obstacles. The leaders of the Chinese Nationalist Party, the Kuomintang, fled to Taiwan. The nearby island had been part of Japan, until the Japanese surrendered Taiwan to China at the end of the Second World War a few years earlier. It was mostly used for farming and agriculture. So the Chinese nationalists took control of Taiwan in 1949 and declared themselves the rightful rulers of China. The Kuomintang rules Taiwan essentially in exile,
3: uh, claims that it is the Republic of China, even though it's only controlling one island, um,
1: and essentially rules it as almost a colonial regime. That's Taiwanese historian James Lin. He says after the Nationalist Party leaders fled to Taiwan, the island quickly became caught up in the Cold War power struggle, pitting the U.S. and its allies against the Soviet Union and communist China.
3: This is the point where the United States really begins to see global communism as the largest existential threat to the United States' presence in the world. And that's when the United States becomes really involved in protecting Taiwan essentially as a bulwark against communist expansion. And so for the course of the Cold War, for the past 70 years, the United States has been the staunchest ally of uh, Taiwan
1: in order to shield Taiwan from uh, what it sees as communist expansion. Because of that American support, the Chinese Communist Party was never able to take control of Taiwan. And the result has been a decades-long stalemate. The Chinese Communist Party rules the mainland, which it calls the People's Republic of China, while Taiwan's leaders rule the island, which they call the Republic of China. In the early years, both sides, in Beijing and Taipei, claimed to be the one true Chinese government.
3: So for the early Cold War period, this is from roughly, let's say, 1949 Uh, until about the 1980s or so, I would say that Taiwan was known to the world as as so-called Free
1: China. And at first, because Taiwan had the support and recognition of the U.S. and its allies, the island got to represent China on the world stage, holding China's seat at the United Nations, for example. But in the 1970s, that began to change. The Chinese and the Soviets had a falling out, and the U.S. started cozying up to China. The White House passed a new declaration, its so-called One China Policy, acknowledging Beijing's position that there is only one Chinese government. In October 1970, Canada became one of the first Western countries to officially recognize the People's Republic of China in Beijing. And before long, the Chinese Communist Party became the internationally recognized ruler of China. And this, this marked a turning point for Taiwan It began to become internationally isolated. After that, Taiwan's status became even more ambiguous and at times confusing. Take, for example, the Tokyo Summer Olympics. Taiwan's men's doubles badminton oh, yes. team captured gold, defeating the team from China. But because of an earlier agreement to placate the Chinese Communist Party, the International Olympic Committee awarded the gold medal to the team from Chinese Taipei, the name of the Taiwanese capital city. The IOC does not use the Taiwanese flag or its national anthem or anything that could identify Taiwan as a sovereign nation. So instead, at the badminton medal ceremony, They raised a generic Olympic flag and played a traditional flag-raising song. Even world leaders have occasionally appeared to have trouble making sense of Taiwan's status. In 2016, incoming U.S. President Donald Trump violated the One China policy by taking a congratulatory phone call from the president of Taiwan. Trump then tweeted his thanks to the president of Taiwan. The Chinese government was furious.
3: This was a call put into me. I didn't make the call. And it was a call, very short call, saying congratulations, sir, on the victory. It was a very nice call.
1: I asked Taiwanese historian James Lin to help clear up any confusion. How do you kind of, in very basic terms, explain in a nutshell uh, what Taiwan is and all, how, what, what we're left with, given, given that sort of peculiar historical journey? Yeah,
3: uh, in a nutshell, might be kind of difficult, but I think, <laughs> I'll, give, I'll give it a shot. I think that um, we should see Taiwan as a decolonizing nation. It's one where it is caught in a current geopolitical struggle from uh, a very powerful neighbor, the People's Republic of China. But it has its own kind of cultural, social, and political identity that it wants to assert. uh, And it wants to be seen as a nation-state on the global stage. But because of this kind of geopolitical pressure, it isn't able to fully be a nation-state.
1: And that's the thing. Over the past 40 years or so, amid countless debates over its official international status, Taiwan has grown into a thriving capitalist democracy.
0: I'm a Taipei-based analyst with the uh, Global Taiwan Institute in Washington, D.C., and the McDonnell-Laurie Institute in Ottawa. Uh, I have been in Taiwan since 2005, and prior to moving to Taiwan, I was an analyst with the Canadian Security Intelligence Service
1: in Ottawa. That's J. Michael Cole, the Quebec City native, has lived in Taiwan for 16 years.
0: It's very clear to people here, and they're proud of their democratic achievements. They are proud to be you know, arguably the most vibrant democracy in all of, all of East Asia, uh, which serves as an example, as an inspiration for a number of countries uh, in the region where democracy is either suffering or inexistent.
1: In Taiwan's most recent presidential elections in 2020, the independence-leaning Democratic Progressive Party won re-election by a landslide. Even the Beijing-friendly opposition party is pro-democracy and human rights.
0: Uh, Taiwan was the first country to uh, legalize same-sex marriage, of which they are very proud as well. Um, So again, the trend lines are moving in completely opposite direction. The contrast with developments in
1: China He says most Taiwanese consider themselves to be an independent nation.
0: Because Taiwan is already a sovereign state. Uh, It has its own currency, its own military, the ability to conduct uh, diplomatic relations uh, with the
1: rest of the world. But, Cole says, even those in favor of Taiwan's independence are still wary of any attempt to make it official.
0: They are okay for the time being, uh, existing in in that status quo. There is a vocal, but still small minority of people who would like the government to move towards a de jure independence, uh, possibly through a referendum, for example. Uh, but the current administration in Taipei is not interested in moving in that direction, knowing full well uh, that that could trigger uh, much more muscular action on the part of the, of the regime back in, uh, back in Beijing.
1: And those fears of provoking a Chinese military response are growing by the day.
4: China is flexing its military might,
1: releasing through state media a flood of dramatic video clips like these. They show Chinese naval exercises that U.S. officials say are aimed to
3: intimidate the people of Taiwan.
1: In January 2019, the Chinese President Xi Jinping gave a speech marking 40 years since the Communist Party officially adopted its policy of unification with Taiwan.
0: Xi
1: warned Taiwan independence can only lead to grave disaster. He urged Taiwan's people to resolutely oppose separatists and jointly seek a bright future of peaceful reunification. In the same speech, President Xi also put forward an interesting proposal, suggesting Taiwan could join China under a so-called one country, two systems arrangement, just like Hong Kong. In the last episode, we covered how Beijing promised to ensure that Hong Kong, while rejoining China, would still maintain its autonomy and its democratic freedoms of speech and assembly for 50 years until the year 2047. But over the past couple of years, Hong Kong's one country, two systems has come under attack.
4: We've only seen it go from from bad to worse.
1: That's Ryan Ho Kilpatrick. He's a Canadian who was born and spent most of his life in Hong Kong, and he was living there, working as a journalist until last January. I no longer feel safe going back there anymore. He, like thousands of others, fled Beijing's crackdown in Hong Kong, which has seen journalists, activists, and politicians arrested under China's new national security law. Kilpatrick now lives in Taiwan, where he says people have watched Hong Kong in horror. People
4: in Taiwan now see One Country, Two Systems promise as a fraud, and no one yeah. He's willing would be willing to accept that you know anymore
1: as a deal to unify with China. J. Michael Cole, the Canadian security analyst in Taiwan, says the events in Hong Kong are fueling fears that they might be next.
0: I do stay up at night sometimes. Uh, I mean, it, it has gotten increasingly worrisome. So over the past 18 months or so, we have seen increased military activity around Taiwan. Uh, We have seen hundreds of penetrations into Taiwan's air defense identification zone in the south, not its airspace, as is oftentimes wrongly reported in the news, uh, but still getting increasingly close to Taiwan. Uh, That is, there's a psychological warfare component to these activities to try to intimidate, to coerce Taiwanese public, Uh, but that also has not translated into, um, you know, a drop in the willingness of the Taiwanese to stand up to defend their, their way of life. The big question is, uh, is that only signaling on the part of the Chinese regime, or is that, uh, we're, as we're seeing increasingly uh, in different analyses, is that indeed preparation for war?
1: The prospect of war, of a Chinese military invasion, has loomed large over Taiwan for decades.
0: Notwithstanding the fact that there is a growing threat of war in the Taiwan Strait, this has not led to uh, a sense of alarm Such that would perhaps compel young Taiwanese to join the armed forces uh, or to build up a proper uh, reserve forces uh, in the eventuality that the Chinese would take action.
1: And he says Taiwan's apparent apathy towards national defense is also due in part to the belief that if China did attack, the Americans would come to the rescue.
2: Issuing a stern warning to Beijing, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has said that United States is concerned about China's aggressive actions against Taiwan.
1: In March of this year, Philip Davidson, a top U.S. admiral in charge of the Indo-Pacific command, told Congress that China is preparing to make its move.
2: I worry that they're accelerating their ambitions to supplant the United States um, and our leadership role in the rules-based international order, which They've long said that they want to do that by 2050. I'm worried about them moving that target closer. Taiwan is clearly um, one of their ambitions before that. And I think the threat is manifest during this decade, in fact, in the next six years.
1: If that happens, if China were to invade Taiwan, how would the U.S. respond? Secretary of State Anthony Blinken was recently asked that very question on NBC's Meet the Press. It
0: would be a serious mistake uh, for anyone to try to change the existing status quo by force.
2: Are we prepared to defend Taiwan militarily? What we've seen
0: and what is of real concern to us is in increasingly aggressive actions by the government in Beijing uh, directed at Taiwan, uh, raising tensions in the Straits. And we have a commitment uh, to Taiwan under the Taiwan Relations Act.
1: The Taiwan Relations Act was enacted by the United States in 1979. It does not guarantee that the U.S. would intervene militarily if China attacked the island, but it says the United States will make available to Taiwan such defense articles and defense services in such quantity as may be necessary to enable Taiwan to maintain sufficient self-defense capabilities. In other words, the U.S. promises, at the very least, to help Taiwan defend itself. The act says it would be up to the current president and Congress to determine whether that involves sending American troops to join the fight. Besides its written commitment under the Taiwan Relations Act, Taiwanese historian James Lin says the U.S. would also have an economic incentive to act.
3: Uh, Taiwan has been very successful, especially in uh, information technology in the electronics industry.
1: Taiwan is one of the world's top suppliers of leading-edge computer chips, semiconductors used in everything from smartphones and cars to U.S. military equipment.
3: And so this is a critical dependency that the United States sees. Taiwan cannot fall into the wrong hands because so much of the U.S. economy, uh, including its own national security needs, is dependent upon Taiwanese manufactured semiconductors. Uh, And so this this tremendous global economic power complicates the the geopolitical position that, that Taiwan finds itself in and provides
1: it with a little bit of leverage. Taiwan's oversized economic importance might partly explain why the U.S. has been busy arming the island to the teeth. In the past couple of years, the White House, under both the Trump and Biden administrations, has provided around $15 billion worth of weapons to Taiwan, including dozens of fighter jets, tanks, and anti-aircraft missiles.
4: China's defense ministry has urged the U.S. to stop all arms sales to Taiwan. A defense ministry spokesperson said
1: the sales grossly violated the one-China principle. And the Americans aren't the only ones providing backup. Japanese leaders, who had remained silent on the issue for decades, are now also speaking out about the need to defend Taiwan.
0: Japan's Deputy Prime Minister says that if China invades Taiwan, Japan needs to defend the island with the United States.
1: While the US, Japan and others have condemned China's military aggression towards Taiwan, the Canadian government has mostly tried to stay out of it. Last spring, the Halifax International Security Forum one of the world's most prestigious defense gatherings was planning to present its top award for leadership in public service to the Taiwanese president, Tsai Ing wen. But when Canadian officials learned of those plans, they reportedly threatened to pull the government's support and funding for the event, worried that the move would further upset Beijing. Now, Canada's defense minister denied that report. But in response to the allegations, the federal opposition parties called for a symbolic vote and the House of Commons unanimously supported the Halifax Forum's decision to give the award to President Tsai. And that's exactly what they did. The Halifax Security Forum announced the news in a video presentation, highlighting her efforts to stand up To Beijing.
3: In Taiwan, President Tsai Ing wen has won re election with a record number of votes.
0: The majority of the people here want this island to remain independent from China, and they think she's the
1: president to do it. The Chinese government condemned the award and the vote of support by Canadian Parliament. Taiwan doesn't have its own nuclear weapons, but the prospect of a fight pitting the United States and China, two nuclear superpowers, against each other has spawned plenty of frightening World War III doomsday predictions. But what would it actually look like?
4: I think militarily we'd be hard-pressed to do anything about
1: it. That's retired U.S. Brigadier General Robert Spalding. The longtime Air Force pilot later became a senior U.S. military defense official based in Beijing. He then worked in the Pentagon as a senior advisor to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs on China and Senior Director for Strategy at the White House and the National Security Council. He was the Chief Architect of the U.S. National Security Strategy under the Trump administration. In short, when it comes to the U.S., China, and military strategy, Spalding knows what he's talking about. And he predicts that China will indeed invade Taiwan, and soon...
4: I think they have the capability to move today. I think they will move within the next five years, just because uh, it's something that Xi Jinping sees as part of of his legacy.
1: And, he says, the U.S. and its allies will be effectively powerless to stop it.
4: Part of the problem is that the the Chinese have nuclear weapons. And so a direct confrontation confrontation or conflict in a military sense with the United States and China is, is terribly problematic and risky. So that's number one. Number two, I think, um, you know, as I said, the Chinese Communist Party has built the predominance of power. So it should be uh, fairly quick. What people don't understand is the Chinese have built up, you know, literally thousands, hundreds of thousands of munitions on their side of the of the Taiwan Strait. So they can reach out and touch every single uh, American base in the the region and really take it out uh, with those weapons. So. It's um, it, it would be uh, impossible at this point for the U.S. to mount much of uh, defense of Taiwan using conventional weapons. Now, they could, you know, essentially talk about our um, nuclear umbrella, but I don't think that becomes credible, um, particularly when you don't have nuclear weapons on the island of Taiwan.
1: Late last year, the U.S. Air Force conducted a secret war game testing how it might repel a Chinese invasion of Taiwan in the year 2030. In the end, after much loss of life and equipment, the US military was able to prevent a total takeover of Taiwan by confining Chinese forces to a single area. Though it's worth noting that some of the key technologies used during the exercise, such as cargo planes capable of dropping pallets of guided munitions, don't actually exist And similar war games held over the previous two years ended in catastrophic losses for the U.S. side. The Americans and the Taiwanese hope that the mere possibility of a U.S. military response will be enough to keep China at bay. But Spalding says the underwhelming U.S. and Western response to Beijing's crackdown on Hong Kong has undermined any deterrent.
4: Yeah, I think it sends a message to the Chinese Communist Party that they can do whatever they want.
1: Ultimately, Spalding does not believe the U.S. would risk nuclear war over Taiwan and will basically leave the island to defend itself, albeit with American-made weapons.
4: I think realistically, since it most likely will involve loss of life, destruction of property in Taiwan, um, hopefully the free world will stand up in unison and begin to isolate uh, uh, Communist China like they should have done a long time ago. And I think that's going to be, probably be the best outcome we could all hope for.
1: Unsurprisingly, that outcome doesn't sit well with people in Taiwan, including Raymond Buxton, the Canadian living near the Taiwanese airbase whom we met at the beginning of the episode.
2: Yes, I I worry. Do I have any control of that? No. Uh, Do I have any plans? Uh, Should something happen? Yes, I have contingencies.
1: But he, his friends and family all believe that while war is possible, it's extremely unlikely.
2: But to tell you the truth, Jeff, honestly, I really just do not think at this point in time, I mean, I I read these articles in Bloomberg and the New York Times and The Economist and so on and so forth, and they got all these generals and these military experts and this and that and thing from Washington in the Pentagon being given briefs about the situation in Asia Pacific. And they're, they're warning about a conflict and they're warning about imminent action. And they're warning about this, that and everything, but they're actually not even here on the ground with their ears open, listening to the people sort of thing. I mean, Asian people do not want war. I don't believe in my heart of hearts that the Chinese want to risk war with Taiwan.
1: But if there were an invasion, all indications are that the people of Taiwan would not go down without a fight. In a press conference in April, Taiwan's foreign minister was unequivocal.
3: Uh, We are willing to defend ourselves, and it's without any question. And we will fight the war if we need to fight the war. And if we need to uh, you know, to defend ourselves to the very last day, we will defend ourselves to the very last day.
1: Raymond points to a public opinion poll last year that found more than three quarters of Taiwanese say they are willing to fight for the nation in the event of an invasion by China.
2: I can tell you right now, the Taiwanese will, will they will, if it ever did happen, they will go down fighting. And uh, and uh, it will not be, uh, it won't be, uh, you know, uh, uh, all uh, peaches and cream for the Chinese.
1: Even though Taiwan is not recognized as a sovereign state by most countries, including Canada, some Western leaders are now actively looking to increase Taiwan's participation in international affairs. In fact, back in 2018, the Canadian government was reportedly set to begin talks on a foreign investment promotion and protection agreement with Taiwan, a possible precursor to a free trade deal. But those plans were derailed in December 2018, when Beijing arrested two high-profile Canadians.
4: It has now been nearly 1,000 days since Canadians Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor were put behind bars in China,
1: Coming up on the next episode of China Rising, we'll update the story that has brought Canada's relationship with the Chinese government to the brink of collapse. As the extradition hearing of Meng Wanzhou draws to a close and the two Michaels finally learn their fate.
4: What happens next could have major implications for the Canadians behind bars in China.
1: Meng and the Michaels, next time on China Rising. This podcast is written and produced by me, Jeff Semple, with producers Dila Velezquez and Kamia Razavi. Audio editing and sound design is by Rob Johnston. You can help me share this podcast by telling a friend. And don't forget to rate and review China Rising on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can find me on Twitter at Jeff Semple GN, and you can email me at jeff.semple at globalnews.ca. Thanks for listening. And please join me next time on China Rising.